6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 63 through 66. I'm one of these weird guys that when I run into a new Christian that really wants to learn the Bible, I say, gee, Chuck, where should I start? Gospel of John? Good ground. Book of Genesis? Not bad. Lots of places. My favorite? Book of Revelation. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? But I've never seen it fail. You can't just read it and get it on your own because it depends too much on understanding the rest of the Bible. But it's the only book in the Bible that has the audacity, if I can phrase it that way, to say, read me, I'm special. No other book of the Bible says, hey, read me. Lots of places says, read the Word of God in some collective sense. Only one book has the I don't know what other word, audacity, to say, hey, read me, I'm special. Blessed is he that readeth this book. Not once, all through the book. Why do you get such a special blessing from Revelation? And notice it's singular, not plural. You can always tell that somebody hasn't studied it because they say revelations. Don't fall into that trap. It just betrays that you haven't read the book. Because the first sentence tells the whole story. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It's singular. It's the revelation of a person, which God gave unto him. Unto whom? Jesus Christ. What? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him. And it's my suspicion that this somehow implies a point in which he regained his full knowledge of his mission. See, when he became incarnate, the presumption I'm making, I'm not a theologian, is there were some things that he didn't know that the Father did. For example, he says, No man knows the day nor the hour, not the angels in heaven, not the Son, but the Father only. That's a strange verse. If for no other reason, it indicates there's something at that moment at least. The Father knew the Son didn't. Now, is that true today? I don't think so. I think he has all knowledge. But I think there was a point at which he regained, and that's what I think the book of Revelation is recording. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, and he sent and signified it, rendered it into signs unto his servant John. The reason the revelation is so mysterious to us is it's all in code. But every code is explained in the Scripture. If you know your Old Testament, you read it comfortably. The reason we stumble is that we haven't done our homework. But that's one of the reasons it's such a blessing. Because if you go through the book of Revelation with a guide, a good concordance is enough. But it's even better if you have some tapes or commentary from someone... But by anybody who really takes the Bible seriously. I'm not talking about someone who allegorizes it. I'm not talking to someone who spiritualizes it as a, another way of saying the same thing. I'm talking to someone who takes the Bible seriously. God says what he means and means what he says. And every time I have made a mistake in my understanding of the Scripture, and there have been many times, it's always when I didn't take it literally enough. But the point is, uh, by going through that, I encourage you, those of you that might be led to do that, don't hesitate to undertake a personal 
study of the book of Revelation. And get, get tapes or commentary by someone you're comfortable with, Chuck Smith, Hal Lindsey, or whoever, and go through it. It'll be the most incredible blessing of your life. And I suggest if you finish that and you survive that ordeal, <laughs> and of course it'll be a blessing. Going to Genesis from there is not a bad move. Because everything that's finished here started there. And you'll understand Genesis only after Revelation. And as you go through various books of the Bible, you come back to Revelation after, say, a few years. And you'll understand it like you never understood anything before. It's an incredible experience. But anyway, getting back to Revelation 5, just to... There's this, we see this throne in heaven, and John's caught up there, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll to loose the seals? And if you study this carefully, there's lots of reasons we believe this scroll is a title deed. And that leads to a whole other study I won't get into. It's title deed of what? The earth? Maybe even more than that. Maybe the universe. But it's, it's apparently the title deed of that which Adam forfeited. And verse 3 says, And no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the scroll, neither look upon it. Notice it has to be a man. Not an angel. Not a cherubim. No man. It has to be a kinsman of Adam. That's why Jesus Christ was incarnate. That's why he was born of the virgin. So that he could be in the role of our kinsman, redeemer. But no man was found worthy. That's the generic. There would be fortunately an exception. John understood the significance of what's going on. You and I might be a little mystified, but John understood. He says in verse 4, I sobbed convulsively because no man was found worthy to open and read the book and neither look on it. John understood the significance. Does that mean the earth and man is lost forever? No, no, no. Verse 5. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah... That's one of the titles of Jesus Christ introduced in Genesis, chapter 49, verse 9. The root of David. Root here in the sense of the family tree. Sounds like a pun, but it is. You know, it's the root of the tree. Who? David. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the, the root of David, both titles of Jesus Christ. And by the way, Jewish titles of Jesus Christ. Hath prevailed to open the scroll and to loose the seals. And I, John, beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood the Lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, idiomatic, of course, which are seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And by the time you get to chapter 5, we've identified all of those earlier in the book as to what those mean. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. And the whole book of Revelation from chapter 5 through 19 is what happens as he performs the role of the kinsman redeemer, which includes the role of the avenger of blood. And we go through with the seals being opened and the trumpets being blown and the bowls being poured out. And we, this all climaxes in chapter 19. So we might pop over to chapter 19. I love verse 10. Let's just start there. I fell on his feet to worship him, this angel said, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's an interesting principle to remember. Every prophecy in the scripture, whether it's a, it's a major passage announcing some big thing or whether it's a subtle hint by some idiom in, in the Levitical law, they all point to whom? Jesus Christ.
tabernacle sat on sockets of silver. What is silver? Levitically, the blood, the redemptive coin, redemption coin. What is the tabernacle? What, what does it rest on? Blood, in effect. Even Judas uses that idiom. When he throws the 30 pieces of silver back in the temple and says, Behold, I've betrayed innocent blood. Every little subtle detail points to Jesus Christ. Verse 11, I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse. My daughter loves this passage. See, it proves horses are in heaven. <laughs> I saw it heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. You've got to be kidding. Who's faithful and true? There's only one. Who is the faithful and true witness? Huh? Are we keeping you up? Who is the faithful and true witness? Jesus. Jesus. Okay, I just want to see if we're together. Okay. Thought maybe I got the wrong meeting here. And in righteousness he doth judge, that's no surprise, and make war. Hey, that's a surprise. When's the last time you remember in the Bible that Jesus Christ was armed and making war? Jericho. Very good. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. No, he didn't. Jesus did. Read the last few verses of chapter 5 of Joshua, and you'll see who really fought the battle of Jericho. The captain of the Lord's host with a sword drawn. Joshua challenges him. Are you for us or our enemies? He says, take off your shoes. You're on hallowed ground. And Joshua worships him. Not like here where the, there's an angel earlier in verse 10. See thou do it not. Angels never allow themselves to be worshipped. There's one exception. He got into a lot of trouble. But the one in chapter 5 commands worship and in fact uses the very phrase that Moses was confronted with in the burning bush. Take off your shoes, you're on hallowed ground. Why was that phrase used in Joshua 5? So Joshua would recognize the same guy, the voice of the burning bush. Who fought the battle of Jericho? Jesus did. In what's called, if you don't understand something, the way you cover that up is give it a big label. Call it a theophany. So you drop that at your bridge club and they figure you know, see. I know one of these old strange Old Testament appearances of, of the, the second person of the Trinity. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Whose blood? His enemies, right on. And his name is called the Word of God. Interesting title of Jesus Christ. John uses it to open his gospel. The first three verses of the Gospel of John are the third genealogy of Christ in the Gospels. You find the first one in Matthew. Matthew was a Jew. He was interested in Jesus Christ as the Mashiach, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He takes it from Abraham through David, through the royal line, through Solomon, down through Joseph, the legal father. Luke is a, Mark doesn't have a genealogy. He's interested in Jesus as the servant. You don't worry about the pedigree of a servant. Mark is the only one that doesn't have a genealogy. Luke has a genealogy. He's a physician. He's interested in Christ's humanity. He takes it from Adam to Noah, of course, right on through to Abraham. And from Abraham to David, they're the same as Matthew. But with David, Luke takes a left turn. He doesn't go through Solomon. He goes through Nathan, another son of David. Why? Because he goes down through the genealogy that ends up being Mary's genealogy proving that he had a bloodline to Adam. He was literally, obviously, a son of Adam. But not through the male line, not carrying the blood curse on Jeconiah from Jeremiah. You can follow that through. 
The virgin birth is hinted in Genesis, executed for a number of reasons, not the least of which is to end run the blood curse God pronounces on the royal line during the days of Jeconiah. Interesting thing. But you say, gee, that's only two genealogies. Yes, there is a genealogy in John, the first three verses. You don't recognize it because it's the genealogy of the pre-existent one. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Sounds like double talk until you study it carefully. He was God and yet he was with God, meaning he was separate. It's an eloquent discussion of the Trinity. You can study the first three verses of John for your rest of your life and not explore it at all. But John uses this interesting title of Jesus Christ, the Word of God. He opens his gospel with it. He uses it in his epistles. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Again, a title of Christ. And he uses it here. You see, his name is called what? The Word of God. I love this definition. Somebody says, you know, Pilate asked cynically, what is truth? That was sort of a, a toss-away line, just an expression of cynicism. My wife did some research, came up with what I, my favorite definition of, there's many definitions, I'm sure, of what you mean by truth. But let me tell you my favorite. Truth is when the word and the deed become one. From Genesis on, God promised that he would provide a redeemer. Told Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, I mean right on through, right? In that manger in Bethlehem, God kept his word, as we might say it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of God. And the armies that were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. It's funny, you see the ancient, uh, you know, the Renaissance painters paint this. What is the sword coming out of his mouth? His word. You betcha. Hebrews 4.12 is your authority for that. That with it he would smite the nations and shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress. Ooh, there's that phrase again. Of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he had on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Who is this guy? Jesus Christ. Don't be confused in Revelation 6 because there's a white, a guy riding a white horse in Revelation chapter 6. And many commentators fall into the trap of saying that's obviously Jesus Christ is on a white horse, you know. Read it carefully. He's going forth conquering to conquer. Who are his buddies on the other three horses with him? Death, famine. He's in bad company. No, that's the false Christ. And he's such a good imitator, he confuses even many commentators. No, the, the one on the white horse that we're talking about is in Revelation 19, not 6, in my view. But again, don't believe anything I tell you. Acts 17.11 still applies. Luke warns you don't believe anything Chuck Missler tells you. Receive the word with all readiness of mind, have your open mind, but search the scriptures daily to prove whether those things be so. Anyway, back to Isaiah 63. We'll go on, but there's a, there's a strange thing about Isaiah 63. We have this vision of Christ, blood-stained, fighting his enemies, but verse 1 bothers us. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? Gee, I thought he's coming to the Mount of Olives. 
I thought all the nations came to war against Jerusalem, and indeed they do. Lots of passages in the Old Testament and the New. Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14, and on and on and on. Revelation 16, they gathered together in a place which is called in the Hebrew tongue Har-Megeddon. Har, Mount, Megiddo. Well, I'm a little confused. All the nations are coming against Jerusalem. Well, what's he doing fighting for his own, apparently, out east at Petra or Basra? What's going on here? There is a view. I wouldn't oversell this, but I think it's interesting to show you, at least share it with you. Let's get back to Hosea. Hosea chapter 5 is one of several passages, and I'm just going to, I don't want to overdo it, so we'll just take a couple and look at it. Hosea chapter 5 verse 15, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction they will seek me early. What is the offense that we're talking about? What is the primary major offense in the end times that Israel is being held accountable for? Recognizing their Messiah. Exactly. When Jesus presented himself, and most of this you'll find in Luke 19 as an example, came over to Jerusalem riding the donkey as Zechariah 9.9 predicted. On the very day that Daniel predicted, the very date that Daniel predicted, and he holds them accountable. As he gets to Jerusalem, he weeps over Jerusalem. Triumphal entry. He's presenting himself as the Mashiach Nagi, the Messiah of the King, to Israel. And he weeps over Jerusalem. Why? He says, because you did not recognize this thy day. Remember, we went through this before. But then he goes on to say, now they are hidden from thy sight. Israel is there declared by the Son of God to be blinded to the reality of what could have been their destiny had they received him then. Okay, they're blinded. How long are they blinded? Paul tells us in Romans 11.25, Israel is blinded until, I love that word, and every time you see the word until, it's usually a very pivotal verse. They're blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. God has set them aside for a while to open the door of His grace in a very special way. Not that it wasn't opened before, don't misunderstand me, but in a very special way that we call the ecclesia, the church. But there is a day when the church itself as an entity, as a mechanism of God's dealing, will be completed. The fullness of the Gentiles will become in. Then what happens? God once again deals with Israel and more importantly deals with the entire world through Israel. Jesus Christ comes back twice, once for his church and once for Israel. Once is what we call the rapture. We take that word from the Latin Vulgate, which is the word in the First Thessalonians for being snatched up, rapturo. It's a strange word because the word rapture doesn't appear in the scripture, yet we use it as that label for that event. As opposed to the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes back in power to take charge. I'm being very good. I'm not using more street-wise idioms here. I'm behaving myself tonight. Now, question is, one of the interesting Enigmas is when did Israel reject their Messiah? Clearly on the triumphal entry, he was rejected. There are some that believe that was just the playing out of a more definitive event of his rejection. 
And some scholars point to Matthew chapter 12 in the chronology of Matthew as the day that they blow it, finally. The reason they believe this is because in chapter 13 of Matthew, he changes his entire approach. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus presents seven parables. They're called so-called kingdom parables. In the middle of that chapter, he explains to his disciples that the reason, in fact, they ask him in verse 10 of Matthew 13, why speakest thou in parables? He answered and said unto them, verse 11, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. In other words, in public he speaks in riddles. And we're all taught, well, those parables, that they're teaching aids. No, they're not. I mean, yes, they are, but they're also designed so that his own will hear and understand, others won't. That's rather weird. You think that's Chuck Missler interpretation? What's going? See, for them, for you it is given, but to them it's not. Those people out there, you see. For whosoever hath to him it shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not from him shall be taken even that which he hath. That's pretty interesting language. Therefore I speak unto them in parables, because they, seeing, see not. Hearing, they hear not. Neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and not perceive. For this people's heart is become gross. Their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they shall see, and your ears, for they shall hear. Verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and ha or have not heard them. Hear therefore the parable of the sower, and then goes on to interpret for them what the first of the seven parables meant. We won't go through the parables, obviously, that's peripheral to our interest tonight. But I want you to notice verse 34, where the style, the, the method, is again commented on. Verse 34, all these things spoke Jesus unto the multitude in parables. And without a parable spoke he not unto them. In other words, he only from this point on, chapter 12 on, he speaks in public always in parables. Or if I may, if I may be allowed a little license, always in riddles. And he only spoke to the public in parables or riddles. From Not always, but from this point. See, Sermon on the Mount, he didn't do that. Back in chapters 6, 7, and so on of Matthew, he lays it on the line. But see, from this point on, he's now speaking mystically. Why? Well, verse 35 says, That it might be fulfilled that was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, that's kind of interesting. That means that the content of these parables will not be found in the Old Testament. See, if these parables are understandable from the Old Testament, they're not kept secret from the foundation of the world, are they? He's revealing something here in this chapter that's been kept hidden from the foundation of the world, which means the subject of those parables is something that was not in the Old Testament, at least not expressly in the Old Testament. Paul answers that part of the picture in Ephesians 3 by pointing out that which was hidden in the Old Testament is the church. These seven parables turn out to speak to the ecclesia, this peculiar, interesting, fascinating, mystical thing 
that Christ announces here in chapter 13 and, of course, gets fulfilled in Acts 2 onwards. The church. Strange, strange. The more you study the entity, this mystical thing called the church, the more you study it, the more baffling it is. It has all kinds of attributes that were not true in the Old Testament, nor will be true in the tribulation. It's a very special period with very special blessings, very special privileges. In fact, it's so incredible, that's what makes it too easy. We have a tough time swallowing grace. There must be something we've got to do. No, that's blasphemy. God's done it all. But, 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 no, no. God's done it all. It's for the asking. He's got a destiny for you that's so fantastic, you can't be eligible for it by anything you'd do. Keep the law perfectly. That's not possible. Well, you, unless you do that, you aren't eligible. No problem. He's paid the ticket in advance. He's paid your admission. 100%, 90, not 50 or 99%, all of it. He's paid 100% of it. To try to add to that is blasphemy. It's, in, it's impugning what he's already done for you. And it's available for the asking. A destiny for you that's so fantastic you can't be eligible on your own. He's taking care of the whole thing. The church. Boy, what an interesting entity. Interesting entity. Anyway, so what happened in chapter 12 to cause Jesus to shift his entire approach, his entire style of presentation? Well, earlier in the chapter 12, he's Lord of the Sabbath. He heals on the Sabbath day. You know, I really don't know. It seems they always record these events that occur on the Sabbath day. You could get the impression, I don't believe this is true, you get the impression from reading the Gospels that Jesus went out of his way to stir up trouble. <laughs> Didn't he ever heal a leper on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Thursday? <laughs> now, he obviously, I suspect, did it many times, but the ones that turn out to be significant, especially significant, are those when he did on the Sabbath day. And that's, of course, what happens many times. But here, of course, he heals, you know, this paralyzed man and so forth, right? <laughs> You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.